out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Esau. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Brenda Souter, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. Member of the Feelies and also the Willies and has um, also been in lots of other bands, including Wild Car Nation, who have an album that has just come out for Record Store Day, which you can find. I'll give you lots of links in the little notes below so you can find that. Um, but we'll be discussing all those interesting um, musical moments in this interview. So this is me with Brenda, who after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years, the musical awakening. Anyway, Brenda, it's over to you. It varied over the years, but it started very early on with um, with radio. And I've only realized recently how much of it was R&B. Um, I can I can picture playing with dolls and associating that with Gladys Knight, um, Sly and the Family Stone, uh, various various groups like that. When I was um, more like a preteen, I was definitely a folky. Uh, Joan Baez, Dylan to an extent, uh, but mostly Simon and Garfunkel. Yes, um, I would hear my older brothers playing Beach Boys and Beatles records. Um, so kind of a, a mashup of, of various things. But when I started actually playing guitar, that was my Simon and Garfunkel, Joan Baez, Bob Dylan um, era. And I would delve into the records. I wanted to learn how to um, pick on guitar. And so I would take the 33 LPs and slow them down to 16. Right. So I could hear like every single little guitar note and figure out how to do um, finger picking from that. And then, yeah, and then as I got a little bit older, then, um, you know, Bowie, uh, just about, yeah, just about anything that came my way, um, I I would um, extract something from that artist yes amazing you were very diligent as a young person weren't you sort of slowing, slowing <laughs> I, things down to pick to pick I had the... I had time you know I had time to do that um, <laughs> did you walk about the lyrics because I know I went through a bit of a my brother had a Simon and Garfunkel album from that but he sort of he got it in the midnight uh, mid 70s and I remember being very obsessed with some of the lyrics especially the boxer and and mm -hmm. sort of songs that seem to be about sort of loneliness and alienation, which I don't know why, but it always seemed to be such a pull for me from a very early age. Did you, was the lyrics at all important to you? Yes, and that was a pull for me too. Um, unfortunately, at a young age like that, um, you know, you're hearing a lot of depressing subjects or just more, like you said, lonely. And so when you start to latch on to that, um, well, what I don't know to this day is, did those lyrics, did those sounds make me feel more depressed or would I have been feeling depressed or lonely anyway? And that's why they appealed to me. Yes. I, I don't know, but it did, listening to the records would bring inspiration, but it would also bring 
that feeling of of loneliness and then wondering about the adult world like the boxer was actually that was the song that i slowed down to hear the finger picking um especially at the beginning of the song yes and and then you can hear it you know throughout um and you know it's about yeah it's a pretty dark song and hookers and you know and there you are like 12 years old you know the the whores on 7th avenue and like just singing it but not questioning it too much and then realizing oh okay this is kind of adult stuff and um yeah i'm thinking about it i remember there was that one i am a rock i am an island and um Mm-hmm. Yes, those lyrics. But actually, the one one of the albums that I know was very young because my parents were very. We came from the countryside in East Anglia in the UK, and um, I think that from their from their generation, they were that post. Well, they were young children during the Second World War, but when they got married, they were the generation that never borrowed money, which was a kind of a big thing for working class people. And um, so I think when they got married in the fifties, they sold all their possessions, including records and record players. So they, you know, you you know, looking back, you can't believe how little people had then, but that was just what mm-hmm. normal was. So a record player appeared in the 70s, early 70s in our bungalow. And um there, there was a Carpenters album actually, which oh. had a massive impact. And and you know, the lyrics of the Carpenters as well were just you know ensconced in this my brain at the age of 10, 11. Because I just thought, again, you know, that that question or that point that you were making about sort of you know, you know, what comes first and what why is one drawn to these kind of ideas of uh yes, not being loved or being lonely or sort of rainy days and Mondays and yeah, I say, I say goodbye to love. No one seems to care if I should live or die. Um, <laughs> and then a blazing guitar solo, which was scandalous back then. Were yeah. you aware of the controversy of that, that guitar solo in Goodbye to Love? No, I did not oh. know that. <laughs> yeah, Carpenter's fans were up in arms about, um, you know, because I, I guess there were a lot of fans who were into the, you know, the mellow sound um and then in comes this blazing guitar solo and 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 people were very upset about it listening back to it 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 all blends together i mean i would never i mean back then i don't i never questioned it i just was like oh wow here's a here's a guitar solo yeah yeah it's it's interesting because there's been two books quite recently about karen carpenter that have been written so uh, you know it's nice that the carpenters i know there was that album in the early 90s which had you know people like sonic youth and shonen knife and the cranberries doing sort of versions of the carpenters songs you know mm-hmm. in their way which i thought was quite a nice touch really because um because 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 the bands that i loved as i got older were joy division and the smiths and i always thought well of course you know if you like the carpenters and simon garfunkel of course you're gonna like these other <laughs> of course yeah <laughs> yeah no i i i went the same route uh yeah joy division polyrock was i loved polyrock when i was and still do um bruce woolley that was like early 20s um yes. polyrock oh uh, i think it was i think they were produced by eno i could be wrong um eno or one of his his peers yes uh, yeah yeah they were oh. they were um becoming popular around the same time as the feelies very early 1980s 
or actually end of the 70s into the early 80s. Yeah, they're worth checking out. Poly Rock. Yeah. Poly Rock, my God. Yes. So did you come from a musical family? Did you, what were, were your parents kind of had an influence on your life? Did they steer you in any direction or sort of encourage you in any way? There was music within the extended family. Um, I actually had a great aunt um, who was an opera singer and she was rising up in the ranks of the, I believe it was the New York Opera, so that or the Metropolitan Opera right in Manhattan. And that was around world, well, that was during World War II. And she gave up her career. She made a, a, um, a covenant, I guess you could say, with God, that if her brothers, she had four brothers who were in the service, if they came back safe, she would give up her singing and go into nursing. And they all came back unscathed, well, physically unscathed. Yes. And she gave up her um, opera career and became a nurse. And I didn't know that about her until years later. Um, she was touring with Mick, Victor Matur, who was an actor, famous actor, or at least in, in the States back then. So they would do radio programs. They would travel yeah. the country and, and go do various radio shows. And she gave that up. Um, I have an aunt, well, an aunt, not a great aunt, who's a music teacher, now retired. Um, I took violin lessons from her for a little bit. Um, there was a friend of the family who gave piano and accordion lessons. So when it came to my family, um, not the extended family, we were all given um, music lessons. So for my brothers, it was accordion. For me, it was piano. And so that started us on the, the journey. You know, then there was um, band in middle school and high school. You know, oh, you take up an instrument and, and play. Um, in, in the fifth grade, though, that was when I started taking um, guitar lessons. So my school teacher was offering guitar lessons and I asked my parents and they obviously said yes got a cheap guitar and I started with guitar lessons and that was mostly folk songs um you want to talk about depressing songs <laughs> they were uh, I, a lot of what I was taught was um well um the I, I wish there was a better term for it but I haven't found it yet um protest songs yes so a uh, song about Hiroshima, uh, you know, just people being repressed and killed and, you know, as many folk songs are about. Um, I, I don't think that went beyond a year or two. And then I just started figuring it out for myself. Um, yeah. Did you ever did you ever listen to was it um, Angie by Davy Graham, who did that amazing acoustic, like a two minute acoustic bit of guitar, which Bert Yance you know, covered as well a few years, decades later. That was just the most extraordinary, mesmerizing piece of guitar, which I think, you know, you know, he was a folk musician, Davy Graham, you know, and um, yes, the British folk tradition was quite something really. Mm -hmm. There was always about mining incidents and accidents and okay. disasters. It was them. They yes. were very depressing, you know, you know, yeah. the long black veil and so on. Oh, yes. Yep. Yep. That was one of them. Yeah. 
Oh, they were such um, sad. And a Bee Gees song, the um, the mining disaster. Yeah, yeah, that was. I, I loved the Bee Gees actually when I was growing up. Was it 1963? It was a punchy <laughs> title. Was it 1963? Mining disaster. God. They were very Pacific on their titles, weren't they? Yeah, I, I had a love of folk music and and British folk music and and that kind of tradition and and sort of Northumbrian pipes that you know people like Catherine Tickell, who's still going, you know, picked up and that tradition and that British, you know, Richard Thompson as well. He came <laughs> along as well with Fairport Convention and Sandy Denman. Yeah. Who knows where the time goes? I mean, God, if you want to get depressed. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's gorgeous. Listen uh, became a favorite. I mean, that was one song that I would just play over and over and over again. Yes. And I know John Peel loved um, Richard and Linda Thompson. Um, I want to see the bright lights tonight with a great song called Meet Me on the Ledge, which was always very... Um, interesting and poignant and um yes you know we we can we can bath in that world can't we mm -hmm. so easily so so as the 70s progressed and we 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 loved our folk music did how did punk sort of um did that play quite an impact on your life yes and that would have been um so after high school i went to art school um i guess would you say that secondary or you know but college level art school and um, yeah, just listening to the radio, continuing to listen to the radio a lot, but now listening to FM and the alternative stations, um, you know, in the 60s, early 70s, it would have been mostly AM. And then the FM stations, the college stations started to become more and more accessible, or maybe I was just more aware of them. I'm not really sure if they were actually more accessible. Um, hearing the police, um, I'm gonna blank on a, a number of the names, but yeah, definitely hearing this different type of sound and, um, you know, just, just knowing that there was this wave, like, you know, the British invasion was happening. And yeah, I definitely got um, swept up in that. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's the British invasion mark two, wasn't it really, with the with the mm -hmm. punk period? Yeah, because we had the police, which you know, obviously we had Sting and his and Andy, you know, on guitar, and um, one of the Copeland brothers. Yes. Yes, I know. There's three of them, aren't there? Miles was the mm -hmm. the businessman. Stuart, I think that was the drummer, wasn't it? And Stuart Copeland. They had, a, they had yeah. a brother who was a sort of booking agent, I think, in America. But yeah, so that that. But then, did you did you sort of also love bands like Magazine and Public Image Limited and that kind of bass sound of people like Jar Wobble and, you know, was it um, Adamson who was in in Magazine who had the particular Harry with Howard Devoto who did, you know various songs did I just wonder how the bass guitar sort of became your instrument uh I did see P PIL live um but a lot of the bands just scared me uh, you know if they if they were too too punk I I was just not I don't know uh, I I wasn't pulled that far into the punk scene um I did see Patti Smith she kind of scared me but I, but I was fascinated by her and her sound and also her freedom of just saying whatever she wanted, you know, the, the, the poet in her. Um, yeah. So it's sort of watching her rise and then 
um, and then she crossed over into the top 40. Um, I took up the bass out of necessity. I mean, over the years, like when I was younger, you know, of course I heard the bass, um, most specifically, I would say the, the Beatles. But at a young age, I wasn't saying like, wow, listen to those McCartney riffs. It was just part of the song. Um, but I was um, in the late 70s. I was continuing to play in in groups. Um, we were mostly folk. Um, one particular group, group was um, folk and also West Coast USA. So, um, oh, like uh, Walter Egan, um, some of the sort of offshoots of Fleetwood Mac, I mean, USA Fleetwood Mac, not, you know, I know, I know Fleetwood Mac originated in, in Britain, but there was a sort of West Coast sound yes. that was becoming, like the Eagles that was becoming bigger. Uh, but anyway, in this group, um, we had three or four guitars, no bass player and an occasional drummer. And this one drummer joined and then he left shortly after that because he just didn't want to be in a group that was all guitars. And, and you know, it was a wise choice of, of his. Um, so I decided to take up the bass out of necessity. Uh, but then the, the group ended up basically dissolving before I even really started to learn how to play bass. Um, so I decided to just take lessons. There was a really cool music shop right in my town and I started taking lessons you know I just wanted to to learn the right technique and just get some sort of a, a foothold yeah. and um, I think I took lessons for about six months and then the teacher said go out and find a band and um, so I um, the um, the connection with art school was that the people that I had been playing with um, in that guitar oriented band. Well, some of us kind of re reorganized ourselves and continued on and I played bass and various people would sort of come and go, but we did play in the basement of one of the members. There was a drummer. I was a bass player. We'd have guitar players coming and going, um, did mostly covers, um, which, so they were more new wave covers. Yes. And, um, a few originals and then that that group kind of broke up and then left three of us doing mostly originals and a few covers and then it went down to just um a woman named Janet and myself and we added a drum machine and we were definitely part of the new wave sort of punk way way underground scene in New York New Jersey yes we didn't play a lot of shows. We were, you know, we were trying to, we were um, playing various small places in New York, um, doing some demos. And that's when the feelies came around. Um, so at that point I was playing a Rickenbacker. I had a, had purchased a Rickenbacker. Um, backtracking a little bit, you were asking about bass sound. Uh, when I heard groups like Renaissance, I don't know if you're familiar with them. God, I love them. <laughs> okay. Well, it's because they did that amazing song called Northern Lights, didn't they? Uh, um, yes, I did. There yes. was uh, Scheherazade. Um, 
I actually started listening to them about a year ago again, just to because I'd forgotten so many of the song, so many of their songs. Um, but that sound, that bass sound, really drew me in, and I I wanted that sound. And then um, so sometime after that, like early '80s, the rise of REM. And I saw R.E.M. on MTV late at night and saw that Mike Mills was playing a Rickenbacker. So that was, you know, I was kind of obsessed with Rickenbackers for a while and then and then moved on um, past that. Yes. My God, that's amazing. Yeah, because Cherry, Cherry Red Records, who are based in, I think, the UK, but they've been doing lots of they've always been doing lots of reissues and they often seem to sort of buy labels or catalogs from other late you know basically they they scoop up old labels and they just put out a renaissance box set which had that famous song northern lights on which mm. um yes it was nice to hear it all uh, again and, I, and yeah i have a memory of being in art school um so i took photography classes so there were hours and hours spent in the dark room and that's where i would hear a lot of radio you know a lot of music and um and i remember hearing um, Renaissance, trying to make the re the transition into new wave. I don't recall the name of the song, but Anne, Annie had cut her hair short. They all looked more, you know, new wave, punk-like. They had gotten rid of their gauze and their flowing, more flowing outfits. And, um, and it just, mm, it didn't resonate with me. And I thought, oh, they've changed. And but I changed too, but it, it was, yeah, I moved on past them. Yes. But, but now, like I said, uh, you know, a year or so ago, um, got back into listening to them, to them yeah. for a while. I don't know why, but I always associate them with Curved Air, which did feature also Stuart Copeland on drums for a bit as well. And um, yes, I think that both bands are still going in some capacity with mm -hmm. the same lead singers. So, mm -hmm. yeah, one thing I did have noticed and just generally, is that a band who has that moment in one period, decade, um, a zeitgeist moment, often really struggles in the next one. I, I've sort of noticed yeah. a lot of artists, like, yeah. they, they really are sort of wandering around, slightly lost, going, oh, what's what's going on now? And it's like, mm -hmm. oh, dear, you're, you know, even though, you know, they're not that old, they're not. And I, I suppose one of the artists was, I mentioned right at the beginning, David Bowie. I mean, obviously, he did his 60s stuff, which was pretty forgettable let's face it but his 70 stuff fantastic his 80 stuff mm, David you're but then there was a lot of people like you know Rod Stewart and I don't know Robert Plant you know you know you can just hear that kind of their their 80s work wasn't great and sometimes they come through that and you think oh yeah you're back but mm -hmm. yeah they, they they suddenly I think I think part of it without diverse divergent too far but it was like they suddenly rather than leading and just going with I'm doing this I'm doing this they're going oh what should I do oh I should get that producer I've been told that this producer's the, the, the and then their sound always sounds a bit like they're just copying someone else and it's a bit of a pastiche yeah. and it's like no yeah. it's not it's a bit painful David you need to go back to what you know best Mm -hmm. anyway that's my theory but yes interesting the bass came along I think it, the same happened with Lemmy from Motorhead he was he was playing rhythm guitar in various rockin' vicars in the 60s and then you know he went into Hawkwind on the bass and then went into Motorhead and and I think the bass is one of those ones that people can embrace in in a slightly accidental way can't they yes yes and generally I mean it was 
one of the best decisions I ever made in my life because there are so many guitar players is there's just so much more competition. Um, But I just fell, I was just lucky enough to um, kind of stumble into the scene where there was not um, a current bass player. And so um, the, the tripes, um, the willies, young woo, all this, this, the Heldon band scene, um, all were in need of a bass player. So by joining one band, I ended up joining several bands. And then um, the Willies became the Feelies. That's sort of a, uh, that's a longer story, but um, so that's how I came to play in the Feelies. Yes. So how did that, that, that what, what year was that when you sort of joined the band? That was, uh, that was around 1983. Um, the first held in New Jersey band that I saw was the Tripes. Uh, very, very underground, but there have been um, releases of the Tripes, uh, some compilations that have come out. Um, Michael Stipe in an article um, back in the 80s, when asked about his favorite current bands named the Tripes, uh, the Tripes put out an EP. Um, so that I saw the tripes in um, in February of '82, and I was I was just floored by the sound. Um, I had never heard anything like that before, and it was just a sound that was kind of percolating out of these various musicians who who all lived in the um, Heldon area. Yes. So I, I think by by '83, I was. Um, I was in the 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 tripes and Young Woo, which is another held and based band um, led by Dave Weckerman of the Feelies. So Young Woo was a, a was Dave with members of the of the tripes or the Feelies backing him up. Um, and then I joined the Willies, which the Willies were actually the members of what would become the Feelies again. Um, again, the Willies was, it's very, conf- it's very incestuous sounding and <laughs> very confusing, but just picture a bunch of people who are musicians and songwriters. And it was, I heard and was told that it was a way of um, being able to play at a club and open for yourself. Right. So, yeah. uh, so the tripes played and then Young Woo formed out of the tripes so that they could be the opening band as well so you'd have these you know they're different bands but it's the same personnel give or take one or two people and then they open for each other and then you you can just leave yourself your stuff set up and play with one band take a break and then come back and play with another band um which is actually kind of funny that it all you know, it is rumored to have started with just not wanting to move your equipment for another band. Yes, that definitely didn't set up. That definitely didn't happen in the UK. It must be very much a, a thing in, for yeah, the American yeah. market. So, were you the with the tribes? Were you you recorded the Explorers Hold, didn't you? Which was that yes. full track. Um, so, was that the first time you were in the studio with a band, or had you already been a full studio like that? Yes. Um, the, the demos that I 
did with Janet. Um, it was in a studio, but not, I, I think it was in somebody's home. Um, but this was an actual, you know, professional studio, Mixolydian, which was in um, Boonton, New Jersey. Yes. My God. That and is... that's where the Feelies subsequently recorded, while Carnation recorded there. Uh, a lot of the New Jersey bands used Mixolydian rather than go into New York City, um, which was more expensive and just the, you know, the, um, just the emotional draining of going in and out of the city, dealing with parking and whatever else. Um, whereas we could just go a few towns away, maybe a half an hour drive and be at a studio where you basically, you had the whole building and, um, and you could park, you could leave your equipment set up. It was, it was much less taxing on us. And it also yeah. had good sound. Yeah. And was it, I mean, it does sound like you had an amazing community of people here. Did it feel very yes. supportive at that stage? You know, did you feel like everybody was kind of going in the right direction or the same direction at least? Yeah, it's, it became a, uh, a big family, um, you know, with musicians, you can, you can become like a family. Um, I guess there are bands where it's more, it's more work and maybe they dislike each other and they all flee to their different, um, you know, families or friends afterwards. But, um, but, you know, they were friends and still are, you know, friends and musicians all rolled together and yeah it just becomes like family yeah um, yeah so what was your involvement with the the opening uh the first album from the feelies crazy rhythms did you you sung on that didn't you uh no well um th that was before my time i i heard about the feelies um in art school but i had never actually seen them um now the reissue of crazy rhythms has a, a few extra tracks and Stan, Dave, and I are on those. But the wow. original Crazy Rhythms, um, it was um, uh, four members, Anton, Keith, Bill, and Glenn. Yes. So how does, I mean, just pulling apart, how does how do you then sort of fit in? Because you, you, you sound like you're in three bands at this, this particular time during the early 80s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So were you just yeah. literally, you know, slipping from one lineup to another? Exactly. It started with the tripes. And then um, I don't recall who asked me, but someone asked me, would I be interested in joining Young Woo? And so, of course, I said, sure, it's, you know, pretty much the same people. Um, and then I do recall... Um, well, so being asked, I was asked to join the Willie and I do recall Bill saying at some point, and that was probably late 1983 or maybe early 84, um, where Bill said, we're thinking of taking the willies and turning um, the willies becoming the feelies. Are you interested? Is that OK with you? And I said, sure. So I was you know, pretty, pretty excited about that. Uh, yeah. the, the Willie, just to describe the the Willies, um, the Willies were more of an instrumental band, and actually at this point in time, the Willies and the Feelies are playing in June in Brooklyn, um, New York. Right. 
So the, the so once the Willies became the Feelies, the Willies didn't play again um, oh, until twenty nine. No, um, no, it's post pandemic twenty. Sorry, twenty twenty two. So last fall, it was the rise of the Willies, and and we were the Willies were thinking of playing again back in twenty nineteen. Um, or you know just kind of bringing that band back. But then, the, you know, of course, the pandemic came, so that was just put on hold. So it wasn't until twenty fall of twenty twenty two that the Willies actually opened for the Feelies, and and there you go, you have your you're in the opening band and the headlining band, and it's it's much of the same people. Yes. Um, so the Willies were back in the eighties: um, Bill, Glenn, Stan, Dave, and myself. And then we just became the feelies. So same, same personnel, just different songs. <laughs> yes. It's, okay. it's a, and then yes. when the Willies rose again out of the ashes in 2022, it's the five of us, but then also John and Tony from the tripes and speed the plow. Um, I forgot to mention speed the plow. That's another held in band, which, um, which rose up after the tripes stopped playing. And that's like, that's another chapter there. So the, the modern willies include John and Tony on some songs. Yes, my God, that is, yeah, yes. you do, there's Pete, there's a guy called Pete, is it Pete Frame? He used to do the family tree of bands and, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of interesting, this kind of, I think he would really have trouble with yours. So yes, because <laughs> they'd have to, yeah come out from each other but then kind of go back in and yes I know that would would, you'd have some sort of wibbly wobbly time machine to sort of cope with this one couldn't you that was amazing did you always play with the virtually the same drummer is that Stan who was yes so did you and Stan sort of lock together in and create quite a good rhythm section for the for whatever band you were in at this stage yeah um Stan is a fantastic drummer uh, my what I what I left out before about learning the bass. Um, I would go out to clubs and just watch what the bass player and the drummer did, and I would also listen to records. So I did a lot of listening to Fleetwood Mac because there was something about the Mick Fleetwood, John McVie uh, magic mm-hmm. that just really appealed to me, and. So I was listening from the perspective of, okay, what is what is happening on the bass? What is happening in the drum kit? And and then I just started to realize, oh, it's be- it's mostly between the kick drum and the bass. And sometimes the bass is weaving around, sort of dancing around um, the kick drum. And sometimes it's, um, striking exactly the same as the bass drum. So I just really w- went down a rabbit hole of figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And then mm. that just kind of like that went, um, I just absorbed that. And that's what I became very reactionary to what the drum was doing um, almost too much because I, I, I now realize that I stopped that sort of weaving around like focusing on melody because there's certainly um like i to my ears now hearing them live it could be a different thing but 
listening to recordings of the Beatles, I don't I don't hear McCartney and and Ringo um, hitting together like Fleetwood Fleetwood and McVie. I hear something different there, more like Paul McCartney's just kind of weaving around. Ringo's very steady but loose. Mm. They're not they're not locked in together. Now, you know, people might debate that, but to my ears, that's not quite locking in. It, it's magic, but it's not like the the Fleetwood Mac sound. Um, so I I know that like whatever Stan was doing, I would, I would just be like trying to do the same thing. And I would say it, it wasn't until, wasn't until um, years later that I realized, no, I, sh- I should be trying to do something a little different. I should try to weave around a little bit more and not play the bass note every time he plays the kick drum. Right. Yes, this is true. so. It's yeah. It's it's like the, it's definitely a rabbit hole, and you can just get so caught up in it. Did um, you? Did yeah. you? I was going to say, did you come across Andy Rourke, who was the Smiths bass player? And I just wondered if you'd sort of also were, was kind of interested in in the kind of the sound, the melody that those two created for you know Morrissey and Marr, because obviously you know the Smiths came along in eighty three. Yeah, that, that was quite a moment in. UK indie charts. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that that didn't influence me, but I would love to listen retrospectively and just um, focus on that, listening to it. But but no, it, it's. Um, uh, I I think I was I would have been focusing more on like REM, right? More more. The, the, oh, yes. On their it's the I, IRS period when they started, wasn't it really? That's with Miles Copeland. <laughs> I know he keeps popping up, doesn't he? But yeah, mm-hmm. so with with the with the feelies, your the first though album you did with them was The Good Earth. This was the one yes. that you were this was so you'd been in the, the Willies and the Tripes, and mm-hmm. then this was this was the band. So when you brought went to went to the studio, had you been rehearsing for quite a time and had those songs all ready and and raring to go we we had been playing for yeah a few years um again uh we started out in the early 80s um you know after after the initial feelies weren't playing anymore uh we did start out as the willies so some of the willies material went on to become um material on the on the good earth so jam some jam sessions um did become songs and um actually slipping was a song that dates back to the crazy rhythms era or shortly after that so mm-hmm. uh, so slipping had been around for several years before getting onto the good earth in 1986 so yeah from 1982 through 86 there were some there were some songs that were now four years old and there were some that were um pretty new yes because because i you know in the uk i mean i know we had a lot of different scenes and tribes i suppose like goth and new paisley and psycho 
rockabilly and anarcho-punk and then kind of 83 to 87 was definitely the indie years in my mm-hmm. brain anyway that was the years of the Smiths, basically yeah. and that was kind of a glorious time did did you sort of there were you know other bands from from the UK and obviously in America but there did seem to be a sense of feeling that things were really happening and that kind of wave of 16 18 year olds suddenly were like this is it you know we're going to listen to this music religiously until we were all a little bit older and we need to focus on something else. Did Were you sort of picking up on that kind of scene that was happening? I would say, yeah, I mean, there were, there were a lot of bands, you know, not what we would call indie bands right now. Back then, I think, I think you were labeled as alternative. And basically that was because this is what the college radio stations were playing. You know, the commercial stations weren't, playing this type of music until say REM crossed over, you know, I mean, prior to that, Patti Smith had, was able to cross over, um, Blondie crossed over, uh, but a lot of the bands were, remained out of that, out of that league. So, um, so it was college stations that were really playing a lot of this music and, um, and then you could go to a college town and play for e- either in a club within a college town because the, you know, the, the students would be hearing you on the radio um, or you might be invited to play a show for the college. Yeah. You know, colleges had budgets for um, having shows and entertainment. Um, and, and yeah, you'd see other bands playing the same circuit. There were a lot of smaller clubs you know, 500 people or less uh, throughout the United States. It, it was, it seemed like a very, you know, vibrant scene. Yeah. And there was, there was a definitely, because now looking, remembering it, it were people like Green on Red and um, they might be giants. There was, yes. those, you know, yeah. I mean, I know we had those kind of hardcore bands from LA and sort of bands like Muscadoo from Minneapolis, but there was kind of a lot of kind of, there was a bit of that new Paisley scene, I suppose, coming through, which was... Yeah, Rain Paisley. Parade. Yes, <laughs> three Paisley. o'clock. Yeah. yeah, and so... But those, those, yeah, those, those kind of... I, I suppose you would call it college radio, you know, and they might be giants, suddenly had that kind of quirky sound, didn't they? Well, lyrics. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, so that was quite good. Did you tour Europe and the UK at that stage, or were you still just in America? We did tour Europe, um, mostly um, um, the mainland, and did very well. So the, the first time we played over there extensively was 1986, the fall of 1986. Um, the original Feelies had played, I believe, just the UK, um, just briefly a couple shows, and then probably because of Stiff. Oh yes, and then and then went back to the states. I don't believe they played the mainland. Um, so in '86, we basically left our day jobs in the fall. Uh, we opened for REM in uh, in the early fall, like September, October, and then shortly after that, we flew over um, to Europe and played throughout Europe. We were there through our Thanksgiving holiday. Um, almost till Christmas. We came back in December. Uh, so we, we played um, the Netherlands, um, Germany. Uh, yeah. Um, 
Did you do Spain, Italy? Later we did Spain and France. We did play there uh, several times. So, um, oh, uh, Sweden. Um, oh, yes. And well, 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 we played in Denmark, too. They would love you in Denmark. Yes, but I could imagine the Netherlands would love the band as well because they had um, a big kind of student anarchist movement. Did you ever play Berlin? Did you manage to find yourself playing in one of the clubs there? Uh, well, Carnation did, actually. Um, yes. uh, you know, I don't recall. I, I should have um, <laughs> dug up one of our itineraries. I don't think we played in Berlin. No. Uh, I were, know. Were REM promoted? Was it Life's Rich Pageant they were doing at that stage, or was it Green? I can't remember. Uh, it was Life's Rich Pageant. Oh, what a guess. Okay. So here is my laminate, which just happened to be hanging. Nice. Here. Nice. <laughs> oh, do you feel like you've really made it then, haven't you? you oh, it. yeah. <laughs> and then um, the Lou Reed tour in 89. Oh, I um, really made it. So yes, this was the, the backstage Universal, where is it? Amphitheater. Oh, Excellent. Oh, my God. Yeah. Had he done New York at that stage, or was that still that, to come? He was promoting New York. Yes, oh that was God. the New York. That was um, when that was when yeah. Lou suddenly hit gold, wasn't it? Really, he after was, years. Yes, of... he was back, and we were just so fortunate to be opening for him on yes. that tour. I mean, we went from New York to uh, to the West Coast, and um, getting back to Europe, um, Lou had asked if we would be interested in. Uh, opening for him in Italy, and we didn't we uh, we didn't do that show or um, group of shows because we were doing the Feelies were doing our own tour, and we were told that if we had played in Italy with him, we would have been embraced by Italy. I mean, Italy was just in love with Lou Reed, and to have opened for him would have been you know, a, a tremendous um, experience. Yes. Oh. It's interesting because there's quite a few bands, artists who, you know, who did their thing in the 80s and, and they're doing a few bits now or recently and it's like certain countries will really love them. They think, well, no one's going to buy this record, but I've got a big fan base in Italy or Spain. And so Why not? Of... Yeah, we should be playing there. Yeah. So, is so there... Like, yes. Yeah. So, like I said, there were there were subsequent tours, and we did play um, in Spain and France, as well as Germany, Netherlands, Belgium. I forgot to mention Belgium before. Yes, there you go. That's where that's where Ma Melvin Gaye went to recoup, didn't he, in the early eighties and find himself again. So there you go. Belgium's always going to be famous for something anyway look so when you were sort of as we were trucking through the 80s which was 86 87 best years of music but then 88 you bring out your next album with um the feelies which is only life at this stage <laughs> what was the what was the atmosphere like with the band at this period uh that period we were now signed to a m we had uh our original record company was coyote records um based in hoboken Coyote put out uh, the tripes, the Explorers Hold, 
and the good earth. And then now, you know, that, and that was the age of smaller record companies being bought out by larger record companies. Um, so we were now on AM, you know, bigger budget, um, more touring, more um, touring support. Uh, some of that was record, actually, we were, we were now recording mostly in Manhattan, which we generally didn't like, but we kind of had to do that. We, you know, with a bigger label, there were requirements like, okay, you know, a better, or, you know, I'm putting in quotes, better studio, bigger mm -hmm. studio. Um, the vocals have to be more prominent. Um, the drum sound has to, unfortunately with the 80s was the big drum sound oh we hate where the snare every snare hit was whoosh, whoosh. um oh so God. it had to be more of that sound so if you listen to um only life you know there is a there is a big difference in the production sound um so yeah so we we did have to follow some guidance from the the larger record company Yes. Um, so yeah, so basic tracks were done in New York and you know, some hours spent on getting the best drum, uh, the best um snare sound. Um it, it was more, I would say it was more tedious. Um although we were we did uh overdubs at Mixolydian, so we didn't have to record everything there, but we did start there and we had a producer um so we were at least still able to do overdubs at a less expensive studio, um, which was closer to home. Yes. Yeah, guys. I did an interview, I think he's in New York, Martin BC, BC Studios. That was sort of where a lot of the bands like Butthole Surfers, that kind of New York kind of slightly art scene would all go and hang out at oh the swans i think that's where they recorded okay. this, this was the power station oh my god that's where um duran duran would go wouldn't they yeah, they were They're... yeah they were celebrities you know oh so and so's here so and so's there um wow. yeah you must have you must have blown a massive budget in your final oh, yeah and then you know how do you recoup it mm -hmm. um you know, it does more. put you into a sort of debt and <laughs> yeah how are you going to recoup that Yes, they, they then own everything, don't they, for years. Because mm -hmm. what I found kind of interesting was that kind of 88, you know, 87, the Smiths break up. I know, I love going on about that. But 88, you know, there was that definite feeling that things had changed. In this country, especially, you know, we had the ecstasy, you know, the drug the drug of kind of, certain, not choice, but there was definitely a bit of a change in scene. And there was mm -hmm. that in the UK, the Mad Madchester scene of the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays and the Primal Scream Band and... The Soup Dragons, you know, people were just wanting to dance and take ecstasy. But then we had the Seattle scene as well with, you know, that that kind of grunge sound that started to develop, you know, via the Pixies and people like that. So how were you kind of as a band were navigating, you know, the end of a decade and the beginning of another one when you went to record um, Time, Time for a Witness? Because this was kind of, it was a bit tricky, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and, and I guess the scene was, it, it was changing. Um, that album was also on A&M. Um, but at that point, you know, we had started touring in 86. This is now five years later. Yeah, we were starting to get kind of tired. Um, we were not a band that did well with a lot of touring. 
Um, there are bands like Yola Tango and They Might Be Giants who just go out and play and play and play. And we weren't one of those. We were we were more homebodies. Um, you know, we would just get kind of weary on the road. It's it's not really a healthy lifestyle. No. <laughs> um, you know, you, it's harder to get good food and exercise and just get out and walk and fresh air and um because you're you're constantly traveling and then you go into a club and it's it's all dark um and, and smoky know. in those days yes yeah, smoky back then yeah Not um so yeah i guess i don't know that we felt the scene was changing because um um only life did very well we we played a lot for that um and um, it did well on the college charts. There are people to this day who say, you know, that album means so much to them. They're the people who will say um, um, the Good Earth was their coming of age record. And some will say only life. Um, and those are I mean, those albums were just a few years apart, really. But but the sound did change. Um, so, I, I, you know, we just I don't know. I'm not aware that it was the scene so much as the band just kind of getting tired and um, time for a witness didn't do as well as A&M had hoped. Um, we stopped playing in July of 91. So time for a witness, we really didn't, we didn't promote nearly as much as we did um, only, only life. So it didn't, it didn't sell as well. We were kind of, on our last leg, um, stopped playing in July of 91. And then that was basically it. Um, Time for a Witness was was out there, but not really being supported. Um, but it is, you know, it is a really good album. Mm. Um, and when people, when we started playing again in 2008 and we were doing material from Time for a Witness, um, I think people just weren't aware of those songs and they, came to love those songs as much as the others. And people would ask, well, what, what album is this on? And it's, we'd say, well, it's, you know, it's time for witness. Um, so time for witness does really hold up. Um, I think as well as only life and the good earth. It's just yeah. that it had been given as much of a chance back when it was released. Yeah. I noticed that, you know, there's a kind of a five year Kind of chapter for this kind of for music yeah, you yeah. Know, it's kind of because you get that next wave of 16 18 year olds who come along and they kind of want their band and they don't want some band that's been around for a bit they want to discover yeah. that new sort of outfit and you know get that new single and feel like they're they've discovered what it was in my day and you know you've discovered it and you're the only one who knows about it and you're always uh -huh, a bit disappointed yeah. and Somehow, yeah, it's it's interesting because quite a few people like the primitives and mighty the mighty lemon drops. Oh know, yeah, it's kind of like why did you break up? And it's like well, actually, I, no one was interested in us, not even uh -huh. the people who were a few years before. Because I suppose they were also those fans were thinking, actually, I need to do other things and get focused on something else. And that next wave of 18, 16, 18 year olds are like, oh, I want to discover the new band. And um, it is tricky for an artist, isn't it? I must admit, I didn't yeah, like. yeah. It's a yeah. fickle world. It's a, so it, it is, yeah. It's a very so what yes, but then your next, you know, musical, and I think this is it, is Wild Carnation, isn't it? This mm -hmm. is yes. So that kind of the world of the Feelies, the Willies, tribe. that's kind of all 
put to one side and then it's for, wild carnation. For me, yeah. Um, Glenn and Dave moved on to form Wake Ulu. Um, Stan joined Luna, you know, the Galaxy 500. Yeah. Post Galaxy 500. Um, oh, I just lost my train of thought. Oh, so Speed the Plow had been playing. Um, so Speed the Plow rose up out of the tribes not playing anymore. The, the tribes weren't able to play as much because the feelies were now going more full time. And so the non feelies members of the tribes formed a new group called Speed the Plow. Um, so Speed the Plow um, started putting out albums and um, Speed the Plow continued. So um, so for me personally, yeah, there were there were no bands, um, no Heldon based bands for me to join. So I was just um, I, I took a part time job in Hoboken and you know i was i was meeting people i was still going to maxwell's from time to time um i did meet up with uh with a woman who was a singer songwriter so we had a, a duo for a while um we didn't play out a lot but we we worked on demos so that that was the next project which lasted for maybe a a year um she had a very nice voice very talented um very unusual, you know, uh, different time signatures, and um, and and so I was in that group. We, it was called Eva Luna, and then um, in March of '92 was when I met um, Chris and then Rich, who so the three of us would then form Wild Carnation. Yeah. Uh, so it was at a it was a chance meeting at a, a Yola Tango show in in Hoboken at Maxwell's in March of '92. Um, Chris Chris, by the way, Chris O'Donovan, the drummer in Wild Carnation, was a student of Stan Domeski from the Feelies, a drum student. Right. And kind of like my life, um, Stan told Chris go out and find a band. So he and Rich Barnes from Wild Carnation um, got together. And um, so they were guitar and drums and they were auditioning or playing with different people, trying to get a band together. Um, they formed a band called Wow and Flutter um, who did some recordings. They played the New York, New Jersey music scene, you know, club scene. And then Wow and Flutter sort of dissolved in um, February of 92. And so then Chris, um, and so I, I ran into Chris at Maxwell's a month, month later, March of 92. And he went back to his car and brought a, um, gave me a demo tape, which was basically Rich's compositions on, um, on guitar. Um, just to see if I'd be interested in maybe playing bass with them. And it took me a couple of weeks to listen to it because I didn't have a, um, I didn't have a tape player in my car. It was a really cheap car with no air conditioning or cassette player. Um, mm. But a couple of weeks later, I called and said that I really liked it. I'd like to, um, you know, play with them. So April of 92 is when we got together and started playing um 
And so I, 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 I don't recall, it's kind of funny looking back now because I don't recall if anyone said to me, hey, write some lyrics and come up with a melody to put over these instrumentals or, or whether it was like my coming along to someone like Leo Kotke or Michael Chapman mm. and just dumping lyrics on top of it because we could have, we could have just remained um, an instrumental band kind of like love tractor. Um, but we didn't, I started writing lyrics and coming up with melodies um, to put over these uh, guitar, these kind of lush guitar instrumentals. Um, so 92 was the, the beginning of Wild Carnation. And by October 1992, we played our first show at Maxwell's, opening for the Baths. Oh, wow. So that was a huge, like, huge moment of getting back on the scene and playing and, and opening, for, being just lucky enough to open for the Baths. Wow, the bats! God, the yeah. chills, the bats! I mean, it's mm -hmm. just all part of yeah, it. Yeah, love them, love them. The flying Nun yeah. Records, God, they're mm -hmm. brilliant. Yes, and then you were in the studio doing Dodger Blue, weren't you, on Delmore record recordings? Uh, yeah. Well, actually, we um we started working on demos because we knew you know it's just that natural progression. You form a band, you try to play out, you try to put out an album. Um, so we started working on demos with our own reel-to-reel uh, -reel machine, a rather nice um, Tascam. And um, uh, so demoed everything. And then um, Mark Lynn of Delmore Records heard us in, I, I believe it was Wetlands, a, a club in New York, really liked the band. He approached us and, um, and then we put out a single. So using those demos, um, the demo recordings themselves. And I guess they, they must've been, you know, mastered to a certain degree, mm -hmm. um, put out a single um, of Dodger blue with the flip side of the lights are on, but no one's home. Um, and then by 94, we were um, now with Delmore with the contract and um, doing the rest of the now, you know, recording at Mixolydian and fleshing out the songs more um, in, in the studio. And actually the, the demos were pretty fleshed out to begin with. Yeah. Uh, on the, so on this recent Record Store Day release, there are um, loads and loads of um, uh, downloads and including all of the, um, uh, all of the demos that we made prior to Tricycle. Yes, my so, God, that's yes. and they're they're pretty. You know, I listened to them for the first time in years and thought they sounded pretty good. Um, that we didn't, uh, aside from putting organ parts down or or keyboard parts, um, most of what you hear on Tricycle is already there on the demos. Yes, I mean, yeah, I mean, the sound of that album it sounds amazing. I mean, the vocals, the melody. I mean, that sort of the sonic kind of quality you brought to it. You must, Thank um, you. did you, did you sort of feel at the time that you'd sort of stumbled into quite a, a an in, interesting band at this time or formed being part of an interesting band? Yeah. Yeah. And it was just, it was very different for me um, to not be just playing bass, but also singing and contributing 
to the songwriting. Um, I mean, I could basically say what I wanted and, um, and also the, um, the melody was, it could just flow. Um, um, I, I wrote some songs totally on my own, not many, um, but I would struggle with picking out chords for me. So for, so hearing these lush guitar parts, um, I could, I could fairly easily or easily hear melody and then maybe a subject matter like this. Oh, this sounds like being a child outside and running down a hill and playing and, um, or, or this sounds more sad or this sounds like, um, you know, it could be, well, actually the, the jangly tune, some of the happy jangly tunes though are, they actually have their dark side. So I, um, I, I guess I have to confess that I toyed with, um, some darker issues like nuclear war, acid rain, um, World War II, but but not dwelling on the darkness, but just kind of having a, I don't know, um, looking at it with a with a with a wig. Um, someone called it um, a counter. Um, counter something counter meaning maybe it was counter meaning yeah. where, where you're talking about something but you're really you're alluding to something else that's a bit darker yes but if you talk about nuclear war and meltdowns and it, it's you, you can't listen to it it's just it sucks the life out of you but if you have this happy sounding song and um, talk about the world, the the walls caving in, in in a lighter, almost tongue in cheek um, way. Then you can get away with it a little bit more. Yes, and also it's a bit. It can be a bit preachy, can't it? If it's a bit too um, yeah, kind of obvious, or you know, you feel let's like not have a nuclear war because everyone's going to die. You just you can't really say that. No. Um, no, and but um, yes, you have doesn't... your way of getting your message across. Yes, in a in a in a way that won't suck the soul out of somebody, where they it, it won't put them into depression. It will give them hope, I guess. Yeah, yes, I know. It's it's a kind of it's a fine line, isn't it? So when mm -hmm. so with with record store day, you've got this as a. Um, a release haven't you well it's just yes. come out actually so who's did was it a surprise when somebody approached you that they wanted to put this out and then as a digital download bring out a live album from 97 97 yeah um well the way that this happened um was that the feelies played at a club in woodstock and um in the audience was uh the owner of a record company called pine hill which is located in um in New England, um, USA. And um, so on the Feelys merch table, you could buy um, Wild Carnation CDs. Um, uh, the original Tricycle and then Superbus were both CD only. We never put them out on vinyl. Uh, so he bought both and listened to them. And then 
shortly afterwards reached out to me and said he, he loved it, especially Tricycle. Um, could he put it out on vinyl? And so out of nowhere came this interest in, in re-releasing um, Tricycle. Uh, we thought we should contact Delmore Records, our original label, and just either get permission or just to say, hey, we're, you know, there's someone interested. We're planning on putting this out. And then Mark of Delmore countered with, well, I'd like to put it out. Um, so, you know, here's a, a CD that's been lying around for 28 years, maybe, you know, mm. 30 years. And now there are two record companies interested in it, which was just so bizarre, <laughs> you know. Yes. Um, so we, we ultimately went with Delmore mainly because, well, that was our original company. We should probably, you know, put that, put that out, um, with Delmore, but, uh, Superbus is going to come out on Pine Hill in September of 2023. So that's currently, at, uh, being manufactured or queued up to be manufactured. And, um, we should actually... Uh, we should be getting um, test pressings any day now. God, that's so, it's, so... so it's a happy ending. Each record company gets to put out a Wild Carnation album, um, and and the timing and and some extra footwork on Mark's part. Uh, we were able to be part of the record store day release of April twenty twenty three. God, that's so good. Because yeah. you've also got this live recording, don't you? Um, yes. Yeah. Part so, of it. So well, Carnation played in, in Germany in 97. Yes, at Hamburg. Mm -hmm. There you go. Home where the Beatles did their apprenticeship. Did you, um? yeah, so who had that recording? Who sort of had the tape for the live recording? Uh, that was done by the sound engineer at the at the club. Um, so we were we were lucky enough that I... I don't know if it was a he or a she I think it might have been a he um who recorded it and then gave us um and we don't even remember if it was a cassette or some kind of a dat or it's some of it's just lost to not being able to remember um but somehow we digitized those recordings so we had the um the digitized versions which we were able to send out and have them um, mastered. Uh, so some of it is just a blur. It's a, it's a mystery um, what we brought back from Germany with us, but obviously it was something that we could transfer digitally yes. and release. <laughs> and it, it, was, um, it was remastered um, as much as possible to extract or bring out more of the guitar sound um, with a line recording, a line live recording. Uh, it's very heavy on vocals and drums. Um, typically, in a in a smaller club, the the uh, the guitar or guitars are not mic'd as much. Right. Uh, oh, we just said my the internet is unstable. Yeah. I guess. It's a, it's, it seems okay here. Okay. That, yes, that's good. Yes. Did, uh, you have to, so, did you have to have to bake the the tapes or the? Uh, yes, yes, the tapes were baked, and that's another thing. I mean, we found these 
we found our demo tapes and then there's that delicate, like, okay, are we going to ship them somewhere? And, you know, what if this or that, um, but, but everything is, everything is fine. Nothing was, nothing was lost. Yeah. Although there, there were some additional tapes that are mystery tapes and we still have to figure that out. There could be more recordings, but, um, but they did not get onto um, Tricycle, the Tricycle re-release. Never mind. Yes. So once, and then what happens with the band? Because there's a huge gap now, isn't there, between mm-hmm. that and your your next release, Superbus. Do you yeah. have a bit of a break from music at this stage, or do you have other projects? Because you're still in. Are you still yeah. doing Speed the Plow? Or Speed, Speed the Plow was happening simultaneously. Um, so. Yeah, I'll, I'll narrow down the story a little bit. Um, Chris and I joined Speed the Plow in, I think that was probably 1992. Mm-hmm. No, no, it had to be, no, it was after Wild Carnation got started. So more like um, maybe late 92, early 93. And then um, sometime, <clears throat> um, sometime passes and then Rich joins. So. So the three members of Wild Carnation are assimilated into Speed the Plow, um, but each group is autonomous. So Wild Carnation plays, Speed the Plow plays. Sometimes we do shows together. There we go with you open, you know, it's it's great if you can be in your own opening band um, and not have to, you know, um, move the stage, yeah. the apps around. <laughs> and then eventually, um, <clears throat> excuse me while carnation started playing more so then we speed the plow continued without us um so in um in 90 i believe it was 95 we went on the road opening for mo tucker uh so that was new york out to iowa and then down towards the south and then home um uh, so Mo Tucker, Sterling Morrison was in mm. at that time. She was promoting an album, um, and we were, yeah, I guess we we were promoting. Um, we would have been promoting Tricycle at that point. Tricycle actually came out in '95. Yes, I know. It's... And then um, the time between Tricycle and Superbus, uh, we started recording Superbus in 2000, even though we didn't have a record company, we thought, you know, we wanted to um, put out our next catalog of songs with or without a record company. Um, Rich and I um, were then expecting a baby. Um, And so actually the whole time that we were recording Superbus, I was pregnant. Um, starting right around the uh, um, the basic tracks, and then um, winding it up with vocals in October or so, um, and then the baby came in December, and then kind of like uh, John and Yoko's chapter with Sean, it wasn't planned, but you, as a parent, you just you know, you've, you've got a baby and then that becomes your life for, well, for the rest of your life, but definitely for 
a, a few years, you're kind of wrapped up in that. And there are some bands who have nannies, but we weren't quite that privileged. Um, <laughs> it would have been difficult bringing it, and just not practical bringing a, a baby along. Um, and I should backtrack a little bit and say in 1999, uh, Anne Hopkins, um, Chris's wife, joined the band on keyboards. So when we started recording uh, Superbus, we now had, we were a quartet with a keyboard player. Um, and then the next time we played live was 2006. I believe it was May of 2006, when now we had a five, five and a half year old and we could bring him with us or he could be taken care of. Um, you know, someone could watch him while we went and did a show. Yes. My God, that's so, because, because just slightly also backtrack, and one of my favorite films in the, in the 80s, probably we will mention, is, is the Something Wild with, um, mm -hmm. yes, so did you, you were on the, yeah, because that's an amazing film, Melanie, is it Melanie Griffith and yes. John, Jonathan? Don, Jonathan Demi was the uh, director. Yes. And Jeff Daniels, Jeff Daniels. Um, Ray Liotta. So how did you? So how did you get asked to do? You performed as the Willies on this, didn't you? So there's the Willies connection again. Um, and using the name the Willies was just kind of a joke, an in, insider joke. Um, that was Jonathan Demi's doing. Um, he was a big fan of the Feelies, and had actually wanted to put out a documentary, which he would have called "Night of the Living Feelies." Um, he couldn't get enough backing, so so the project that he went with was um, the Talking Heads. Stop making sense, right? So had there been backing, it could have been the Feelies instead of, or in um, you know, in addition to the yes. Talking Heads. Um, but that was, you know, I I'm just amazed at what a risk he took because. Um, I mean, I didn't realize at the time, it wasn't until um, 2014 when we played a, um, a Jonathan Demi festival, film festival in, um, in New York, um, that we realized what a risk he was taking um, with that whole Something Wild project. So he had been working, um, I forget which, rec which um, film company it was, and he wanted to start up his own production company. And so Something Wild was his pilot film. It was, you know, it was his first film on his own with his own production company on Orion Pictures. And so I think there were a lot of eyes on him, like, okay, what would he do with his own production company with this new film company? And um yeah, so that I think that film was very dear to his heart because it was his first kind of solo project. Yes. But to ask a band like the Feelies, who were, you know, we're we're kind of um, we're we're homebodies. We're not flashy. We just we go with what we feel. We're not trying to be something. We just want to play music and kind of do it our own way in in this kind of low key way. Um, and he asked us to play this part, um, and he suggested, why don't you dress up really weird and flashy, you know, 
And none of us did that. We didn't go for it. We just dressed up like ourselves. And it's sort of this irony. Um, I mean, when you look at the scene, okay, it's a it's a high school reunion scene, and we're the, you know, we're the dance band, we're the kind of wedding band, mm. and we just look kind of awkward and like we don't believe, belong there, but in a way that works um, because we look like we're probably desperate for a job. Um, you know, we're musicians. We're probably we kind of look like we could be unemployed musicians. And we're playing at this reunion because we we desperately need the money. I think that's more of what we um, end up looking like, rather than some flashy yes. um, band. If you look at if you watch other Jonathan Demi films, the bands who do cameo appearances, they're usually more flashy. You know, they're dressed up. They they look like they're in a movie, and we did not look like we were in a Hollywood movie. Um, so, so that was totally Jonathan's um, kindness and um, enthusiasm that we ended up being in the film. Yes, that's amazing. That is, that's great, you know. So what was the, what was the song that um, is kind of featured in the film with you? Yeah, you that's know? Loveless Love. And Jonathan definitely had a vision that when the um, the antagonist shows up, that's Ray Liotta, um, who shows up at uh, sort of unannounced at the reunion and literally bumps into Melanie Griffith and Jeff Daniels. Um, so he saw this as being the pivotal scene in the movie. It's sort of this kind of kinky, romping film and then Ray Liotta shows up and on the dance floor the film just turns dark it's very dark <laughs> and it was this vision that in the middle of loveless love um where it sort of builds up that was going to be the the interaction of of those three characters um so a lot was riding on the song um loveless love and the and the dancing and like so from our perspective from the stage in this um in this high school reunion scene you know we could see them dancing on the floor and bumping into each other it was filmed many times different angles different you know different takes to get it just right um so again that was jonathan's vision um he saw loveless love as being this key yeah. pivotal song in the movie God, it was it was one of my fave films of that decade, you know, that alongside, you know, with Nell and I, Spinal Tap, Betty Blue and <laughs> such movies. But I love that film so much. But yeah, Ray, Ray Liotta, I think that's um, Ray. I mean, he was so sinister. Yes, yes. And we would, um, that scene was filmed down in Florida. Um, they, you know, they, they found different... Uh, locations for different scenes and that one happened to be in Florida and so we were all um, at a hotel and we would be um, there would be a, a shuttle bus that would bring us to to and from the set and I actually I, I think it might have been our first day going to film I sat next to Ray on the bus and just struck up a conversation and 
he was such a, a, a nice, wonderful guy. And, um, yeah, so we're just talking on the bus and then, you know, you go to the set and he goes to his, where we, whatever he does. And we go to our place on the, on the stage. And, um, and it wasn't until we actually saw the movie that we, that I, you know, we realized, or I realized how sinister he was. And it was like, but this is this really nice guy who is sitting next to me on the bus. And, 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 you know, my, and just like, totally freaked out by him after watching the film <laughs> i know and then you saw goodfellas and thought mm, i know <laughs> god if only you had a selfie we didn't have such things then did we but that would be lovely to have um, had a photograph of the two of you together yes, yes. Yeah. oh what a star yeah. what a voice what a face yeah sorry about that that was just one of those i'm glad i've got, i'm glad i've heard that's part of the story because i've mm -hmm. got such you know it was you know when you're younger you'd watch a film a lot, really, wouldn't you? At least three or four times. Um, yeah. So then, so so just kind of in the current world, then. So then, I, do you come back as part of the Feelies again in sort of like two thousand and eight? Yes. Uh, so the Feelies, um, yeah, weren't weren't playing anymore. Although um, Glenn was, uh, uh, there was the Glenn Mercer band during those. Mm, well, um, mid 2000 years. And um, uh, so while Carnation did some shows with Glenn's band, um, but then in 2008, uh, we were asked to open for Sonic Youth um, for a, a, a film, I'm sorry, film, I'm still talking film, um, a music festival in New York. So New York, New York City, Manhattan would have different um, uh, different music festivals happening. Um, Central Park. This uh, this one happened to be down downtown in Battery Park. Uh, so we opened for Sonic Youth, and that brought us back together. You know, playing again, kind of relearning the songs, um, doing a new song or two. And initially it was just going to be that one show, but then we decided to do, rather than just have that be our first time playing in front of people, um, we went back to our, um, our typical 80s into the early 90s, uh, sort of camping out at Maxwell's um, for the 4th of July. So every every year the Feelies would play Maxwell's for the Fourth of July um, for two or three nights. We'd kind of set up there, and um, that that was just something that was kind of part of our lives. And um, so here we were, two thousand and eight, kind of doing the same thing. So we played Maxwell's a few nights just to kind of warm up. Um, the first evening was family and friends only. And then the next two evenings were um, tickets. So it was back to that tradition of playing there. And then the following night was um, uh, so we were playing in front of you know thousands of people opening up for Sonic Youth. And then we um, got a manager, we got a booking agent and continued playing. So from 2008 until now, uh, we're still playing. 
Um, mm. You know, put out two albums during that period. And um, we just recently played um, several sold out shows. Um, the, the audience was just amazing. You know, just such good energy coming from the audiences. That like that really lifts us up. That really um, recharges our our batteries. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's quite amazing because you're busier now than you've ever been, haven't you? It's, it is, yeah. And the Wild Carnation coming out, and um, yeah. So we hope to do Wild Carnation hopes to do some shows um, this summer um, and beyond. But um, as of this point, we uh, we just have we just did one show in a record store um, the weekend after Record Store Day. Yes, amazing. It's just, it's so nice to see so much kind of activity. So you did something, the big, the, the big Saturday thing. That was it. That was um, last weekend, wasn't it? April 29th. Um, I think it's coming on two weekends. Oh, I think you did. A, wow. Yes, you've been doing so it. So it's Feelys, Feelys played and then the next weekend, um, Wild Carnation played in Red Bank, New Jersey at a record store. Yes. And that was good. It was good to just have a very low key. Um, we were kind of behind um, CD bins. Uh, it, it was a, a very unique setting, um, which was very comfortable for us for playing the first time in four years. Yes, absolutely. Because you mentioned you did two albums here before and in between. Mm -hmm. Have you got plans to do new recording in later on in the year you might have just said there, that. there's no set plan right now although we were talking about maybe putting a willie's album out right. so so we could you know focus on the willies rather than another feelies project yeah uh, so that's that's um that's undetermined right now what exactly is going to happen i mean there there are some new songs um, one of those we're playing, we've been playing live um, for a few years now, um, but the others we haven't actually, you know, rehearsed so that we could play them out. Yes. Are you amazed after sort of four decades, you know, you're, you're still yeah. sort of so yeah. ensconced I mean, in the music world with virtually the same community of people. Exactly. And that's why, you know, by this point, it definitely feels like family. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Has that been a beautiful kind of experience to have that it kind is. of? Yeah, yeah. And we're all human, you know. It at at times, you know, someone might get irritated with someone else, but kind of like family, you're you're going to you're going to be there through thick and thin. Yes. Well, I think once once you've you've gone, I think I suppose like with any friendship, you have that honeymoon phase, and even you know the next friendship, you have that honeymoon phase. But you've got to remember there's going to be that moment where you have a bit of an irritation and it's kind of, I'm often relieved to have the bit of irritation rather yeah. than the honeymoon because then you think, right, now we can get onto the proper part of the friendship rather, mm -hmm. or, you know, than the honeymoon, which is kind of not going to last right. in any, you know, friendship, basically. Right. So a, um, a long lasting, yes, for a loving type of situation. Yes. Or, and you, or and really, you, and, I should say relationship. And you and you know and you've understood the bits that really are quite irritating with the person, which you don't often get in, which you for some reason in the especially when you're younger, that that part of that 
you know process of of kind of the honeymoon I well, sorry mm -hmm. to keep on about it but you know you suddenly you ignore that bit that and then one day that irritation is too much and you hate them right. for a bit and then you sort of get through it and it's quite a nice relationship after then and right. yeah so it must and be these, these irritations are it's just very very mild I and mean, we're not talking anything earth shattering just <laughs> you know yes. it's like just very very mild things where where you just kind of you just kind of laugh yeah you might laugh at it and say oh you know whatever um but when we're playing music the the beautiful thing about being in a band is um and and i know it can vary from band to band if you have if you have egos and people kind of rival rivaling each other on stage um but that doesn't happen with the feelies. So, so you have that, you still have that um, connection of playing together where you're, you're working together to make it sound as good as it can. You know, everyone's doing their part to, to work with each other musically. Yes, absolutely. And did you, um, I mean, with with the record school, just going to Wild Carnation, you get kind of five hundred, you know, vinyl done. Mm -hmm. Do you sort of have you found that actually it's like wow, that's they're gone or or you know they're just, gone? Yeah, they're gone. They're gone. <laughs> Probably should have made a thousand, but um, there was just there was just hesitancy in having too many, and then not, I, I guess, not recouping. Yeah. Uh, I did see there were a few on Discogs and. I saw that there was one available coming from the UK. So I'm very curious how it got there because <laughs> I think this was, this was just um, regional and I don't believe that included Europe. Uh, no, no offense against anyone in Europe. We would have loved to have um, had them released there, but um, much like, uh, well, going back to the original tricycle, it came out on Delmore in the United States, but then Zensor, I don't know if there's still a label or not, um, but Zensor released it in Germany. So that was part of, um, you know, that was definitely a factor in our playing in Germany in 97. Right. So hopefully someone, you know, a, um, a European label will pick up on it and want to license it and put it out in Europe. Yes. Well, that's fantastic. Do they, with those copies, do they get numbered so people know they're bought, you know, a certain number or are they just 500? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, each has a, a little piece of paper inside for the digital download. There could be. Right. So they would, they would know they, that they were there. Okay. Um, I have a copy here, but it's, it's still wrapped. Oh, don't worry. <laughs> so, I, must admit, I must admit, the aesthetics of a vinyl record have just has has grown hugely. Yes, hasn't it? yes, you know, it's a like, lot more. Yes, a lot more thought into just making it unique or a, a work of art, really. Yes, I know. I, I saw some comments, and people are so excited about that release. Um, it's brilliant that you've done mm -hmm. it because obviously. Yes, it means so much. Well, look, do you, I mean, do you have any plans on doing any dates in the UK or Europe coming, you know, in the next year or two? If, well, the feelies, no, unfortunately. Um, on our Facebook page, we get 
um, many requests, please come to Spain, please come to Australia, please come to the UK, um, but we are not traveling that far. Um, but I would say Wild Carnation would entertain the thought. Um, mm. So it's not a closed door for Wild Carnation. And, and actually um, in 2019, I had reached out to, um, uh, to some booking agents in, um, in Europe about possibly Wild Carnation, Speed the Plow, some sort of a Heldon family um, tour. And we actually got as far as um, like within the band picking out, all right, it would be, you know, June of 20, yeah, around June of 2019 that everyone would be available. Um, it didn't get anywhere. We didn't get past a booking agent saying, well, that's the World Cup. Don't come over. It's no one will be going to clubs. They'll, they'll all be watching the World Club, uh, sorry, the World Cup that summer. Yes. Um, so that got put aside. And then of course, COVID came the next year. So that whole, um, idea of some of the bands going over to Europe, um, that just never got off the ground, unfortunately. Mm. Um, so I don't know if anything will ever happen, ever happen but we, we tried. We I know. sort of tried. So we'll have to come to New Jersey, won't we? <laughs> well, uh, yes. And we we're forever grateful to those fans who have traveled from long distances to see us. And, you know, we, we wish it would be easier to, to travel around, but we're, we're pretty much just the East coast. <laughs> um, so, well, I say, <laughs> yes, well, it's, it's brilliant. Well, look, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. I'm so pleased. And, thank you um, so much. <laughs> yeah. It's been fantastic yeah. to hear the story. And um, yes, it's been sort of interesting unpicking your, your incredible sort of musical journey, really, which well, thank is, you. It in uh, bizarrely starts starts almost at the beginning, doesn't it? So mm -hmm. um, yeah. there you go. Well, look, can thank I, you. Yeah, can sorry. I mention where um, people could contact us or see our activity? Yes, definitely. Okay. Um, so at this point, um, to get the to purchase the downloads for those people listening, you know, on on the continent um, or uh, UK. Um, or anywhere outside of the United States, um, they would go to delmorerecordings.com. So D-E-L-M-O-R-E recordings.com. And there you'll find links to the downloads, uh, which it does include um, the remastered Tricycle album. Right. Um, you know, it was remastered before it was um, uh, put onto vinyl. Um, also, uh, we do have a page on the web, uh, wildcarnation.com. We don't have a lot of activity there, but that's just to have a presence you know, on the internet. Uh, we're most active on our Facebook page, so Wild Carnation at fa Facebook. Um, we also have a Bandcamp page. So if you looked up, if you went to Bandcamp, Wild Carnation, um, you'd find us. Uh, also, there's a YouTube channel, uh, Wild Carnation Band, um, on YouTube. Also, SoundCloud. Um, I 
when I do these interviews, I ask people to please not put um, these recent remasterings on YouTube. Um, if you want to support the band, if you want to support music, please go to um, the DelmoreRecordings.com Bandcamp page and purchase from there. Yes, um, because you know there, yeah, YouTube. If you just watch YouTube, the band is getting nothing from it. Yeah, and and it, I mean there are only five hundred copies. Obviously, we're not millionaires. It takes the little bit of income we could be receiving or at least paying for the cost of the album um to be you know reissued um you're basically taking away um recouping what we've and the record company has invested yes and i was just looking at dalmore recordings you've also on the same label that they put out some karen dalton records yes yes and we reached recently started getting into karen dalton well, um, Delmore Recording Society has a lot of um, reissues of dead people. So we're one of the few still living yes. um, artists. And it's, um, she's amazing. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I was floored by her voice and just, wow, she was kind of, I, on one hand, retro, on the other hand, ahead of her time. Yeah, and it's just unfortunate that she, she, you know, her life just didn't end um, on a happy note. Was was there a film about her recently that came out as well? There, there is a documentary. Uh, I'm not sure. I know we, like Rich and I, have her. Um, uh, any films about her on a watch list? Uh, but outside of a um, a documentary, which which could be what you're talking about, I'm yeah. not sure. I think someone was trying to track down what happened because um, in her life, but there was also another artist from that kind of period, another person who did an album and I think just disappeared and was, you know, possibly located in a sort of place in Scotland. But then, yeah, I know there's some quite interest because Bastian Bunyan was another artist, but she thankfully is still alive. Oh, yes. Um, yes, uh, we love her. Love yes. her work. Yes. So I did an interview with her quite recently. And got oh, to... yeah. oh, lucky. Yeah, no, that was very lucky. She was, she was absolutely stunning. I just, God, she's beautiful. Yeah, I can't remember. There's another folk artist that I can't quite recall who I really like, but one of those people who did, uh, yeah, the mystery of what happened to them when they recorded that classic album and then just suddenly get a gypsy caravan and no one's seen them since and mm -hmm. you know but I think it was Karen yeah there was somebody else I mean I love those sort of songs and uh yeah atmosphere that people have so yeah um, yeah yes. definitely definitely anyway look thank you ever so much and I will I will put those links that you mentioned as well in the notes so that people can just go oh yes that's a good point and I will mention at the start of my blurb um, just to go to especially delmorerecordings.com and uh, your band campaign for Wild Carnation. And um, yeah, I'll put those links. I will check that and make sure that people can see and uh, do it because, um, like you said, it's it'll be good. Right. I never, yeah. But and look, we do I, hope to add more 
onto the band camp site is just there just literally has not been the time to to do more with these sites you know life gets in the way um so there isn't a lot there on our band camp page but there will be at some point yes so um, i'm going you go and go to new jersey to see the band sometime yes <laughs> anyway look thank you ever so much thank you have, so much yes, have a lovely day and be uh, well yeah. um, we love uh we love the the uh i'm a big fan of europe let's put it that way and yes. uh, and the outer line i mean what is the proper way to refer to the uk and ireland and europe the what do you call it these days can you call it the european union or is that <laughs> the europe Oh, that's just a dream, isn't it? I think we just call it. I so we. I suppose it's still Britain and Europe, and you know. I suppose, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. It's a funny gig, isn't it? Really, there's always been. I just want to say the right thing, and I'm yes, not I know we all we all we all say. stumble on that. Good. Oh yes, what should I say here? So, so one would say Europe and the UK. Yeah, I think you know, and I think it's always had that. And bit. Ireland. So the Republic of Ireland is part of the of europe yeah that's right yeah okay so one so that would cover all those countries by saying yeah so 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 yeah you're you're yeah you won't go wrong if you say that like that you know but i have to think about it again yes what do i think when i think of southern southern ireland and northern ireland and then you think oh god have i just said something wrong Mm -hmm. (laughs) but yeah that's generally it yeah southern ireland still part of europe i believe Europe and then you know the UK fudging around in a fudgy way I mean mm-hmm. sort of yeah I mean it's been a bit of a mess really hasn't it but there you go That's... well the whole world at times is a mess and <laughs> you know, we're still trying to figure it all out and some yeah. of us are trying to do the right thing and others I know. this is true and, havoc. Uh, anyway look Thank you ever so much. This has been amazing. Have a great day and thank I'll keep you. in touch and good luck with all the projects. Okay, thank you. Thank you yes. so much for reaching out. Bye-bye. Okay, bye now. Bye. And that was me in conversation with Brenda Sauter talking about her life in music, which you'll be able to find here, there and everywhere. That's um, the feelies. But like I said, Wild Carnation has an album that has just come out as part of Record Store Day, which I'll give you the link below. So you can go and get a copy, find a copy, download a copy, buy a copy. I don't know how these things work. Anyway... It's all going to make sense in the notes below. Uh, This has been the C86 Show, David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive and groovy, please. Life's too short. And also, all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Just do C86 Show. It's all there and much more. Much, much more. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.